Well, hey, Deer Creek, uh, this is a special morning. Uh, we're actually taking a break in our study of the book of Acts because we have a special guest preacher this morning. His name's Shane Philander. Shane is a church planter uh, in Parkland, South Africa. If you know South Africa, it's just outside of Cape Town. And uh, he's the pastor of the church known as Calvary Presbyterian Church uh, there in Parkland. And it's this new exciting church plant project. And the reason that we wanted him to come out uh, is because he was already stateside, but he is one of our newest church planting partners. And at Deer Creek, we want to plant churches until Jesus returns. That's really part of our mission here. And Shane is just an example of what God is already doing in South Africa, which is really this groundswell of gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches in that area. So would you invite me, or would you join me in inviting Shane to preach for us this morning? Aaron, I did it. It's on. <laughs> Good morning, dear Creek. Morning. Good to be with you. Now, if you're here for the first time this morning, I welcome us to this service. Because um, we're here for the first time, both you and I. So whatever you're feeling, if you're here for the first time, I'm feeling exactly the same thing. <laughs> Time's 100. So, yeah, hopefully we get to speak afterwards and sympathize. And be like, no, they've, they've actually been welcoming to us. But anyway, um, thank you for the leadership of Deer Creek for not only inviting me to preach, but even if they invited me to attend the service and be among them, I would have been blessed. I've met most of them, and it's been a real blessing to, to sense the, 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 the authenticity of their, of their hearts and inviting me in and partnering with us back in Cape Town. And as Daniel just said, um, I'm in a process of planting a church, and that happens uh, as soon as January next year of 2024. Uh, we, a group of 15 to 20 that meets on a, on, a, on a Friday night, and so we're hopefully kick-starting our services um, next year. That's the, that's the 4th of January, so remember that date in your private prayer. Say, Lord, I pray for Shane and for Calvary Presbyterian Church um, that the Lord will use us. Um, wonderful to be here this morning, as I said. My wife and my child is back home. Um, she's Alex, and his name is Solomon because he's wise. He's probably going to be wiser than me, um, <laughs> which is not a hard, uh, hard suit to fill. But I am blessed to be here, and they allowed me to come, and I keep praying for them as they that side. So let us get to the Lord's word. We're turning to Luke chapter 17. If you have your Bible, so your phone with you, Luke chapter 17. And I'm going to read for us the first 10 verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get straight into it. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. And he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, 
like a grain of mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would be it, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in, ex in expectation and in hope that you will do this morning what you do best. What only you can do. And that is minister and speak directly to the heart. Holy Spirit, we pray knowing expectantly that when the combination of you and your word is together, magic happens, great things happen, the supernatural comes into existence. Lord, this morning I have no clue of where each and every person is as an individual, as a family, as a husband, as a wife, as children, as a grandparent, as a brother, as a sister, but you know the very depths of their heart. You know what goes in their minds and hearts when their wife is asleep and they're concerned. You know, O oh Lord, what happens in her heart, O oh Lord, when her husband is at work and fear, O oh God, overcomes her and anxiety overcomes her. You know the pressure at school. You know all things, O oh Lord. And for this very reason, we know that it's only you can address these issues with the gospel. We pray this morning that in light of the sense of community, as a collective church and as a body, you know what Deer Creek needs. And you will minister exactly what they need. Do what I could never do. In Jesus' name, and the church together says, Amen. Amen. So I'm not sure whether you noticed or not that the modern culture, with its technological advancement, have overwhelmed people with the idea of looking like someone or something else. This is why there are all these apps or applications on your phone that makes you play around with your face or with your features. You can look like a character, a cartoon character. You can look like a celebrity. You can look like your older self, your younger self. You can be an avatar. And if you want to re be really good looking, you can look like me. <laughs> so the most, but the most notorious app for this is called the app Snapchat. Your children will probably know this best. There you can look like an animal, a monster, a cry face. But although most people hopefully use these apps just for fun, like my white Ukrainian wife, when she was pregnant, she used an app to see how our future child would look. That was exciting. <laughs> and I guarantee you, he came out much more whiter than I thought. <laughs> I was super disappointed. It's like, man, they always beat us. What's wrong? 
But one can't help but notice that the culture is obsessed with looking like someone or something else. But the one thing that is missing with this whole agenda is that the culture forgets that not only or features only can't make somebody look a certain way because behavior matters. So if your behavior is ugly, it doesn't matter which app you use and how you make yourself look, you'll still be ugly. Meaning once a person's actions are ugly, whatever those actions might be, morally speaking, it doesn't matter. And in this passage, our Lord Jesus warns his disciples about their behavior. And not just warning them about their behavior in a moral sense, but warning them about their behavior as it relates to their saving faith. This passage is divided into four little sections, and if you scan with me through it, you will see the first little section. There is an initial warning to, as his disciples, not to be like the world. So he says to them, watch yourselves. The second thing he says, the command follows for his disciples to then be a forgiving people. It says forgive. Then the third is the response of the disciples to our Lord Jesus. And Luke highlights the disciples' request for more faith. Then the last little section This is our Lord's reminder that as his disciples, they have a duty. And in verse 1, it makes it clear that he's teaching them about the nature and the demands of discipleship. Because in verse 1, it says, Jesus said to his disciples. And as a result, to our Lord's urgent and strong warning, the disciples' response, it was desperation. Lord, increase our faith. Meaning, if we're going to be your disciples and the disciples you want us to be, we better need this thing called faith. And not just the faith that we have, but an increase of that faith. So although this passage can be divided in each section and itself, or four little sections with a different focus, the disciples' question for more faith is the thread that runs through the whole entire ten verses keeping the other principles together tightly. Our Lord was basically saying that it is their faith that will help them behave as as his disciples. No wonder the theme of faith then becomes the feature of the following chapters as well. Later in chapter 17, verse 19, our Lord tells a parable of one leper who out of 10 lepers comes back and praises God for his healing. And this is what our Lord says to him. In verse 19, that it is his faith in our Lord that was the key to his healing. In chapter 18, excuse me, verse 8, our Lord again speaks to his disciples through the parable of the persistent widow about the necessity of faith. And here our Lord even connects faith to his second coming. And this is what he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? But this time, Luke not only points out, to a, points out a saving faith, but to a saving faith that is active. It's brewing, it's buzzing, it's alive within his disciples. 
Although the word faith does not appear explicitly in chapter 16 that precedes chapter 17, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, we can assume that Luke, Luke even in Lazarus, or Luke even sees Lazarus' resurrected life as one of saving faith and an act of saving faith. This is the same great faith sold to the centurion or by the centurion, chapter 7, when he trusted our Lord to heal his servant. The same faith of the woman with the alabaster box who poured perfume on our Lord's head. It is therefore safe to say, church, that Luke wanted his audience to know that behind the actions of a true disciple of Christ is genuine and active faith. So this is the takeaway point for you and me this morning. Even if you forget everything, do not forget this. I mean, don't forget everything, but even if you do. The Christian's actions must resemble their act of faith in Christ. The Christian's actions must look like their saving faith in Christ. And what I mean by this is, for Deer Creek to reach up and reach in and reach out, you must have a disciples of lifestyle that is consistent with your faith in Jesus. We can preach, we can sing, we can train, reach up, reach in, reach out. But if that is not motivated and driven by the fuel of faith, then our behavior will show that there's no faith at work. Amen? I come from Africa, you can say amen. <laughs> so we will look at the passage in three points. Number one, a distinctive faith. Number two, a deep faith. Number three, a doing faith. Distinctive, deep, and doing. So let's look at the first point, a distinctive faith. Our Lord says in verse 3, the disciples must watch themselves. Why? Because in verse 1 it says, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. They must watch themselves not to be those through whom others are stumbling. Rather, they must be those through whom others are not stumbling because they are the people with faith in Jesus. The word woe there in verse 1 speaks of God's judgment and someone who makes others stumble. And this is the kind of people they must not be. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 18, verse 7, on the same issue, Matthew connects God's judgment to the unbelieving world. And he says this, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Our Lord were not merely saying his disciples must watch themselves not to make people stumble. He was specifically saying not to make people stumble because this is what the already judged world does. They do it already. And since they are not part of the judged world, they must be distinct from the world. Watch yourselves. You are not like them. So don't behave like them. They must watch themselves living out their saving faith actively by not making other people stumble. 
Church, this is ultimately the beauty of saving an act of faith. It makes us stand out from the culture, specifically in the way we treat others. And here lies the difference between the Christian story and the story of the culture. The actions of the culture is to distract and destroy the act of and saving faith of the people of God. It's a thought through agenda. They want to take out the church. They want to insult the name of Jesus. Just a few months ago, I saw on Twitter a video of a Bible-burning ceremony. And one of the ways they do it at the moment, I don't know who you hear about in the States, but definitely in Cape Town, South Africa, is that the Enlightenment narrative, which is a form of self-expressivism, particularly in the sexual revolution of the day, is that they beat the drum of the philosophers like Zan, Zark, Rousseau, or Wilhelm Reich, if you know about them, putting the pressure on the church, making them stumble and say, you better do this because we're coming after you. We're taking your license, we're taking your children, we're taking your people, we're taking every form of educational institution that you started, whether that's a crest or kindergarten or school, you better do this. And the Christians stumble. He says to his wife, what must we do? I'm going to need to close the church. What must we do? We had the Bible college in mind. Now we can't do it. What must we do? We can't plant that church there because there the governor had says he closed every door of every church that does not apply this narrative. And so the believers stumbled. The elders have stumbled. The church stumbles. But this must not be said, church, of the Christian behavior towards others. Why not? Because you are not called to destroy people's faith in Jesus, but to stir their faith. Your faith don't make people struggle and stumble, but it helps them to step and strive towards God. Why? Because your actions are motivated by your active and saving faith. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. In other words, all our deeds and actions must be from the overflow of our faith to help people to know and love Jesus more. In verse 2, the second part, our Lord points out who these people are, who the world causes to stumble, and who the disciples must therefore watch not to cause to stumble. He calls them little ones. Meaning, they are the Lord's own disciples, the Lord's own children, and their own fellow brothers and sisters. Isn't that such an endearing expression? My little ones. You ask the dad or mom, would you call your children your little ones? And they have thought through every little detail of how to express that, of how this, these children, their children are their little ones. Even if they're four children, one child, they can say to you, this one's personality is this one, this way, and she's entirely different than the other three or four or two, but I can tell you this, Ah, she's my little one. 
I can tell you this, that one is my little one. Oh, he, oh, very stubborn nature, but he's very creative. I'm telling him somebody touches He's my little one. So the Apostle Paul on the road of Damascus is then attacking the little ones of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute and attack the Lord's little ones, you are persecuting the Lord himself. It's the Lord's little ones. Not to say that they were allowed to make unbelievers stumble. Our Lord is clear in other passages that the unbelievers must be loved and cared for so they can glorify their God in heaven. But our Lord's point here, church, is that they must watch themselves not to do what the judge world is doing. That is be making believers stumble. Church, your saving and active faith is given not only to be a little one of Jesus, but to care for the other little ones. Notice the seriousness of the judgment in verse 2. It says, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tying around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Our Lord's disciples not only had to live out their saving and act of faith by watching themselves not to behave like the world, making believers stumble, but they also had to live out their saving and act of faith by not coming under the judgment of God made for the world. So it's not just do not touch them, it is do not touch them so that you can remain untouched. And this is what makes your faith and my faith distinct. We build up the church, and in that way we avoid judgment in comparison to those who do not. Let's look at our second point, a deep faith. So not only a distinctive faith, but the species is calling us to a deep faith. In verse 3 to 4, our Lord says that their faith will be most noticeable in whether they forgive or not. Look at verse 3 with me. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Then verse 4 says, even after seven times of sinning, and the believer says, I repent, you must forgive them. Notice here our Lord's sympathy is with the believer who sinned, not with the offended. In other words, he says, even though rebuke is necessary, it is forgiveness extended to the repentant sinner that really makes and takes precedence in showing your faith. No wonder in verse 4, if you look at it closely, even though the believer sins seven times, the word rebuke is not mentioned again. But if you look at the word forgive, it is repeated. Our Lord's point is that it is the disciples' willingness to forgive that will showcase the depth of their saving and act of faith. Do you know it's harder to forgive than not to forgive? And so when somebody forgives, it really showcases and displays the depth of their faith, the maturity of their hearts. 
And here lies the problem with our culture. We live in a world where people are measured by their willingness to rebuke, to challenge, to oppose, to protest, and not in a world where people are measured by their willingness to forgive. I hardly find a person who says, oh, that man or that woman is so remarkable because they are just such forgivers. No, I as things of, you don't better get on his bad side. We build reputations that is connected and related to how cruel a person or a woman can be. It's not built on the basis that they are forgiving hearts. This is why we are infected with a cancel culture instead of being remedied by a comfort culture or by a comfort that consoles. And this poison makes... Making fellow believers stumble through unforgiveness has slipped into the church. It is now common to hear that someone has left the church instead of choosing to forgive. It's now common to hear that one believer is giving another believer the cold shoulder then rather than to forgive. Church, this either means that some believers do not possess true saving faith. Or that those who do possess true saving faith are in disobedience, not exercising their true and saving faith. And I'm not just saying this to you. I had a hard year behind me last year. Probably the last two years. where a particular individual saw it fit and necessary to make my life hard. And I won't kid you, I struggled to forgive. When I was distant from him, it felt like I forgave. But when I saw him, I could feel the stirring in my heart. The bitterness well up. The instinct to seek vengeance. And I keep saying, Lord, Lord, you help me to forgive. I don't know how not to forgive. I want to, but I can't. How do I forgive? You help me forgive. And when I came to this passage, as you could believe any guest speaker has preached the sermon before, so you're hearing it for the second time. But when I get to this passage, I was like, now I gotta forgive because I can't go preach this. <laughs> or at least not with a straight face. Simply put, it's a saving and act of faith that makes forgiveness possible. Church, it is true that we serve a righteous God who is a judge and we need to present him in that character. But we must not forget that he's also a merciful father. I was listening to an interview between Michael Kruger and Owen N. I'm not expecting you to know them. But I listened to this interview and Owen Inns was saying, we live in a culture today where the younger generation are more concerned whether God is a merciful father. Does he show mercy? According to this passage, he does. And he therefore expects us to do likewise. Some of you here this morning you can do with some forgiveness. 
You can do with some mercy and kindness and love and comfort towards you. Because you're tired and drained and emotionally exhausted. You can't even tell the difference between your workplace and the church because the church treats you exactly the same as your workplace. You do something wrong, they don't forgive. You come to the church, they hold it against you. No one is forgiving you. So the church is not distinct in any way. Their faith is not deep because they're not forgiving you. They're exactly like your CEO or your boss who holds that thing against you. And you can do with a merciful God this morning while he's here for you. Some of you, others of you, you need a community of faith around you to keep you accountable. Do now forgive and say, it's been long enough. You've held this against him or her for seven years. You gotta forgive. Where's your faith, brother? Notice in verse 5 that Luke uses the word apostles and not disciples as in verse 1. Luke is is deliberate in his wording. Why? Luke is showing us that they saw this as our Lord's instruction of their apostolic leadership of the church. In other words, for the Lord's church to be a place of active faith and a mark of discipleship, buzzing with peace and unity and forgiveness and reconciliation, it must start with the leadership. Which is to say, if you serve a leadership, God forbid is in this church, who does not know how to forgive, then you're in trouble. The leader's got to lead from the top down in showing kindness and mercy and forgiveness. And believe me, I know this personally. If anyone gets hurt the most, it's often the leaders. You have spent four days and five days on that sermon and still somebody walks up to you and says something like, oh, you fall flat this morning. I didn't like it. You didn't get to my heart. You didn't do this. And they go home and they think, oh, what can I do better? The last time I was the same woman who criticized me. I can't stand it. And now they build it. Next Sunday, the same woman who comes up says pastor and he goes great to see and yet he is called to do that because his buddy knows how he takes the arrows in the back by the same people who criticize him and yet he forgives is this sermon too long Notice that all of the above is what makes the apostles realize the seriousness of the matter. So they ask, Lord, increase our faith. The question reminds me of those video games when I was small that I used to play. Back in the day, it was this little cassette looking thing that you punch in and something doesn't want to go in deep enough and it doesn't show and, and I had to press it. And at that time, there's only like really three or four games. There was Tetris, there was Donkey Kong, there was Mario Bros. in 1942. And the interesting thing about these games is this. The, o- the only way you could stay alive is in two ways. It's either you kill the enemy, you stay alive, or you, can, you collect rewards and build up your battery life so that you stay alive. And these guys are basically video gamers. Lord, increase our faith. 
It's like a water tank that it runs low and then the Lord has to put it up again and then it runs low and the Lord has to put it up again. And this is what we understand from a solid and good biblical theology that it's not the case of how faith works. The more you have, the more you'll stay alive and active and energized. Notice in verse 6, our Lord's reply, he says that having faith is not about levels, amount, or quantity. He says, reply, or he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. In other words, it's the nature and activity of faith that matters, not the size. See, church, again, in South Africa, the prosperity gospel is rampant. And this is why it is so dangerous because of this very text, because they teach the exact opposite that our Lord is teaching here, that faith is a more, is having more or faith is not having more and more and more faith. You need more healing, you need more faith. You need more prosperity, you need more faith. You need a promotion, you need more faith. You want your children to be safe, you need more faith. And you just can never get there. This is because for them, the gift of faith that people received at salvation is insufficient to be a true disciple of Jesus. You know, I can't tell you how many people I know who are struggling with ill health blames themselves. If I could just have more faith. Let's look at the last point. A doing faith. In verse 7 to 10, our Lord moves from telling the disciples that they do have genuine saving faith by which they can watch themselves and in this way treat other believers well, to now teaching them through a parable that his expectation of them to live out their faith is nothing but him expecting them to do their duty. The parable ends with our Lord's lesson in verse 10. Saying, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. His point being that as faith practicing disciples, they are not doing anything special and alien to discipleship. In fact, they are merely doing what should come naturally to those who are disciples. And we see it in this parable. Look at verse 7. Our Lord asks two rhetorical questions. The first one, he says, will he say to the servant when he comes into the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Then look at verse 9. He asked again, will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Both times, the obvious answer is no, the master won't say this to the servants. It is in verse 8 that we see our Lord's expectation from his disciples. He says, won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. In other words, church, being his disciples who serves him as their duty is the display of an active and saving faith to his command. See, church, not to make others stumble by forgiving quickly is merely to do what disciples are supposed to do. 
It is doing one's duty as a disciple. You are not part of this culture, even though you're in the culture. Who is without God's saving and act of faith, which is why people don't see the need to live in peace with others. And therefore, store up, they, and therefore they store up offense. People store up bitterness and vengeance. And in this way, make people stumble. No, by the grace of God that you have received, the gift of faith, you have received that gift of faith to live in harmony, and it is your duty. However, some of us here this morning have bought into the culture's way of thinking. So much so that you stop doing your duty to Jesus. That is practicing your faith by serving your church and love, mercy, and forgiveness. And just like the culture, you do not have a duty problem. You have a faith problem. You think it's the duty. You say, no, no, I don't want to serve in that ministry anymore because of X, Y, and Z. And all that seems, it seems like you're too busy, you're at work, you can't do this, you have a lifestyle, you go up in great hikes, which is amazing, you've got a beautiful area, but I'm telling you what it comes down to when your behavior is depleted and it falls flat and it doesn't serve Jesus, you've got a faith problem. The faith that our Lord Jesus made possible for you through his life and death and resurrection it is not a product of our own creation. By God's grace, this faith has been granted to us as a gift in Christ to live as his true disciples. And it remains to be by faith that we live until we live by sight in the new creation. Paul says to the church in Rome, speaking about how people are saved, he says in verse chapter 3, 27 to 28, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By, by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, church, the saving and act of faith you possess is the faith you received, not the faith you achieved. So that when you exercise it, you are doing your duty. Church, Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And for this reason, as I said at the beginning, the Christian's actions must resemble their true saving faith. Some of you here this morning, you don't watch yourselves. Let me get personal for a moment. Because you have the kind of faith that makes people stumble. This is why you are known to be quick to rebuke. You're slow to forgive. In fact, you hold grudges long. You have a critical spirit over everything. The church, the leadership, the ministries, the preaching, the finances. And what this shows is, is the gospel is no longer centered to your life. That Christ is no longer master over your life that you are ought to serve because it's your duty. No. You have now made yourself master. Always looking to be served. To be acknowledged. To be thanked. Others of you, 
You do watch yourselves. And you don't make other people stumble. You never rebuke without being quick to forgive. You're a pleasure to be around because you're servant-hearted. However, you stop seeing your faith as a duty, but as some uniqueness in yourself. I'm better than them. Because I forgive. They better notice it. This is why you boast and you're proud of the things you've done. You're always expecting to be thanked and to eat with the leadership and drink with the important people in the church because I'm almost like them. And as a result, you get angry and bitter when no one notices your pretenses faith. For you also the gospel is no longer central and Jesus is no longer master of your life because you have now become the master of your own. And this morning, by his grace, he's calling you back to make Jesus master of your faith, stirring you for duty in the church and among the people of God of love and good works. But there's a third group. Some of you, until this morning, you didn't know you don't have the saving faith. You only discover now why you struggle to forgive. Because you're trying to do it by the flesh, by your own strength. You say, I can, they say, if I download this app and I follow the seventh step, by the end of the seventh step, I will know that I've forgiven this person. You've got a Snapchat faith. But Jesus this morning wants to give you the true faith, the saving faith that makes you a person of peace, of kindness, of love, a joy that you've never ever experienced and no one around you understand how can this person who's been so bitter be so quick to forgive because you have met the master and you are serving food and meals and you can't wait to be in others' presence so you can bring harmony and light. Because you are a true disciple and you know why? Because when our Lord Jesus come as God in the flesh and he dwelt among us, you know what he did? He came to forgive, not aiming to make people stumble, but to make them strive to in faith towards God. That's what he did so that when you accept Christ, you not only getting the faith that he gives as a gift, you get the person of the faith of which you need to desire, the object of your Hope and dreams of the future. So to you this morning, I say the same thing. That since Jesus is not master of your life, this morning is your opportunity to know him as the author and the perfecter of your faith. If you put your trust in him, he will forgive you all your transgressions. He will forgive you of all the grudges you've held. He's made you 
possible for you to forgive and live in harmony with that family member. He will give you that saving faith. And better than everything else, he will give you the peace that you can now have with God the Father. Won't you take him? Won't you receive this Jesus? Even if you thought for years you know this Jesus, I came 16 hours of flight, 21 hours in total to tell you Jesus loves you. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you, Lord, this morning your son is on offer for all people seated here. Grant them, Lord, the ability to repent, to put their trust in Jesus. Thank you for doing this, Holy Spirit. And the church together says,